You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with John Pearl, who is using Node and React to build a service that automatically generates browser tests for you as you use your site naturally. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Sure. So my name is John Pearl, and I'm the co-founder of QA Wolf. My background is that I've worked in lead engineering at a few different startups, and we always sort of ran into the same issue, which is we wanted to ship new functionality, and every time we went to release, then we'd have to go and test that. So the way we would do it is we would do manual testing because we found it too difficult to set up automated tests for like the end-to-end testing. And basically, what I decided uh, when we started QA Wolf is we wanted to solve that problem. So we wanted to make it as easy as possible to create and run end-to-end browser tests, and that's what we do. Awesome. So yeah, I tried it out real quick before the show. It was so cool. It's just like you go to the site, you start using your own site naturally, and then like it just generates the actual browser tests that run automatically. Yep, that's uh, basically anything that we can do to make it easier to create and run the browser tests. That's what we're focused on. So you don't have to install anything. You can just use it online, kind of like if you're using Figma, but for browser tests, you can use your site and then we capture the actions as you use your site and we convert that into test code. Very cool. So as for the project, is it just you developing it or is there a small team behind it? Right now we have uh, three full-time people. So it's me, my co-founder, Laura, and we just brought on someone to help us with sales and marketing, Scott. And we're also hiring a designer. So it'll be four soon as soon as we find an awesome designer to work with. Nice. Yeah, I don't know about you, but for me, it's, it's always so hard to find a really good designer. Yeah, I think that's sort of the case with everybody. Um, there's definitely a tremendously large number of talented people. You know, finding uh, someone who is excited to work with you and that's available is the, is the tough part. Um, because everyone, you know, if you're amazing, then you have a ton of different opportunities. Yeah, for sure. So this application, when it just started at ground zero, you know, basically just had like an, an empty directory on your dev box. How long did it take you to develop the MVP, assuming like you developed it or, you know, not someone else? Sure. Well, this word, what you used is QA Wolf 2.0. And we launched QA Wolf 1.0 in November of 2019. So um, it took us a little bit over a year uh, after that, since we actually just launched QA Wolf 2.0 in uh, January 13th of this year. Um, and so, you know, something like we weren't working on it for that whole time. We were still improving QA Wolf 1.0, but uh, I think it took us about nine months to develop QA Wolf 2.0. Nice. And during that nine months, was that just like watching and getting feedback from users using 1.0 and then you just iterating on 1.0 and then eventually you marked it as two or, or did you end up like rewriting everything from scratch? We took a small part of 1.0 and then basically 2.0 is a hosted version of 1.0. So actually the way QA Wolf started is we wanted to solve this problem and we always try and work with the user experience backwards. So initially we we're like, the coolest thing would be if you just put in your site and QA Wolf automatically creates the test for you. So we enrolled in a bunch of machine learning classes online and took like a few Stanford online machine learning classes. We actually did like six months of different research projects trying to set up machine learning algorithms to automatically create tests. Um, 
we ran into various roadblocks and my co-founder Laura was like, I'm not going to keep working on this if we don't ship something that real users can use. So we decided at that point, hey, what's the easiest thing we can build that would be useful? That's something that we want to use. And that was QAWolf 1.0, which basically you can use your sites. And we, as you're using the browser, it generates code for you. So we launched that, you know, after about a month of work, started working on October, launched like a really, really bad version of it in November. And it was just a, it's an open source node package. We got a lot of feedback from that and kept improving it. The, we looked in our Gitter. We had, we're using Gitter at the time, now we're using Slack, but we broke down the number of questions we were getting and over 50% of the questions were, how do I install this thing? We had a lot of users that were struggling to even just install the node package. And so that led us on a path to how do we make it even easier with QAWolf 2.0 where you can just use your browser and then create tests. Sorry, that's a long, long-winded answer, but that's the evolution of QAWolf. No, that's perfect because it breaks down, you know, how it evolved from 1.0 to 2.0. Now, current day, do you also offer a self-hosted version where someone can run it offline or is it just the hosted one? Yeah, so QAWolf is entirely open source. Actually, our hosted version is just, we're just hosting the code that's open source. Um, so you can use it for free, host it on your own servers and, you know, not pay us. Very cool. So on the topic of uh, traffic or, you know, monthly visits or daily visits or a number of tests run, like what are some interesting metrics around uh, the current day? Like how many people are using the site on the hosted version? Yeah. So we have a thousand companies right now that are using QAWolf 2.0. Um, in terms of, uh, I think some interesting statistics in terms, you know, what we're running in production. I think what's interesting about what we're doing is the elasticity of our servers. So we run all of the tests in 100% parallel. And that way, you know, browser tests are normally pretty slow to run. They could take like a minute or even sometimes multiple minutes per test. And they're very resource heavy because browsers are very resource heavy. So to avoid, you know, having crashes, we actually provision two virtual CPUs and four gigabytes of memory for every test. And to run, we have companies that, you know, we just launched a few months ago, we have some companies that have like around 60 tests. So when they trigger a new deployment to their staging environment, then we actually spin up 60 different containers and like 120 virtual CPUs all at one time to run their tests and, you know, like 240 gigabytes of memory. And then once those tests are done, then we just scale back down to our base level. And so I think that is the current, I guess, limit or capacity limit that we're currently hitting. Um, or we're not hitting a limit, but that's the sort of max resource allocation. And it's really a limit of how many tests people have created so far on QAWolf 2.0. Okay. Yeah. Stuff like that really excites me because I can't wait until we get to the deployment aspect of, you know, how you scale that up dynamically. It's going to definitely be fun for sure. Now, before we get there though, uh, let's talk a little bit about the development side of things. So, you know, you mentioned this site is written with Node and using React on the front end. Do you want to go over uh, motivation for using Node? Yeah, I'm, I think the motivation is pretty simple. It's, you know, we working from the user experience backwards, what did we want to accomplish? And then was the easiest way for us to do that. So my co-founder, Laura and I, we've written a lot of different apps in Node and React and that's what we we're most familiar with. And so that's what we started with. And, you know, previously we we're using Python because we needed to use TensorFlow and that was the easiest way to do that. But in terms of what we wanted to accomplish, building a single page application 
it felt like an easy choice to use React in Node just because that's what we're familiar with. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. And what version of Node do you run, by the way? In production, we're running uh, version 12. And that's just, um, we probably should upgrade that, honestly. But that was the LTS version when we first deployed it. Oh, okay. And then do you happen to know latest LTS, like as of mid-2021? I think right now it's 14 is the latest LTS. And that's actually what we develop with locally. So we should update our uh, you know, Vercel LTS version, but everything's working fine. Right. Now, speaking of locally, uh, do you run anything like Docker in development or no? Yeah, so we do use Docker as well. Um, our stack's actually, well, it's probably simple compared to a lot of you know the companies that you talk with. Um, but the we have a few different parts of the app. The test runner, which is the same thing that is used to you know run the browsers and while you're creating tests, those are all in Docker containers. So um, the actual user interface that you interact with, that's in React and hosted with. Uh, it's it's actually a Next.js app that is hosted with Vercel. So the API and front end is um, all built with JavaScript and deployed to Vercel. Okay. And then for local development, though, do you just have something like a compose file that spins all that stuff up in separate services? Or do you kind of just mostly install things directly on your dev box for the application itself? Yeah, we actually just re- like wrote all of this. Um, now we have Docker Compose set up where it spins up in each of the different services and you can sort of run it in dev mode where most of the services will be in Docker, but then the one thing that you're working on will just run that uh, Node app locally so that it's it works better for like hot refresh as you're updating the code. It automatically updates the um, runtime. Right, that makes sense. And I guess you also get some help from your uh, code editor of choice, maybe a little bit better code complete and stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're all using uh, Visual Studio Code. Cool, so you have access to stuff like remote containers anyways if you wanted to. As a feature, like it connects to a Docker container if your application is running in a container and then it's kind of like you can still get code complete and all that. Oh, interesting. I hear what you're saying. So you're saying to um, basically use, like to containerize your development environment um, and then use the VS Code extension to explain the code complete to me? Oh yeah. So, you know, normally with VS Code, and I don't write a ton of JavaScript, but, you know, it works like this for other languages as well. You get all sorts of nice benefits, right? Like linting and code complete where you can do something like console dot and then it'll show like, hey, by the way, there's like a, a log method or function that you can run on that. Yeah, with IntelliSense. Yeah, exactly. That's what I meant by code complete. And then, because I forget terms for VS Code, but uh, yeah, the remote containers feature allows you to get that IntelliSense and other things like benefits as if the code were running develop or the code are running locally in your dev box, but it's actually running in a Docker container. So I don't know implementation details, but it's like an extension you install in VS Code. And then you write basically 10 lines of JSON, like a, like a dev config.json file. And then, uh, yeah, VS Code is split up to be client server. So it's like the client, like the actual, you know, GUI of the app runs on your dev box, but the server is running inside your containerized environment. But it's done in a way where, like, you don't need to make a custom Docker file or do anything crazy. Like, it's all abstracted away from you. Gotcha. That's definitely interesting. So going back to your app here, you know, you mentioned using Node. Did you happen to use a specific web framework on top of Node or no? Yeah, so we're using Next.js for our front end and uh, GraphQL back end. Um, we're using Apollo as our client, our GraphQL client and GraphQL server. And that's all in that same sort of mono repo that we have this. Um, it's really actually just one project for the server and front end uh, with Next.js. Nice. So how do you like that so far, just working on a mono repo with the front end and back end in there? 
it is fantastic. Um, we actually started off 2.0. The way I had done things previously at um, my last startup is we had a separate GraphQL node API, and then we had a separate, we were just using create React app um, for the client code. And that's actually how we started off things here uh, with QA Wolf. But what we found is that we're not exposing our API, or we only have like a few small endpoints that we expose publicly for other developers to use. And um, most of our API service area is just internal APIs for our front end. And so having it all in a mono repo as you're doing development, since Laura or I will be just building a feature and doing the front end and back end, it's nice and simple to have it all in the same PR. And with Vercel, they automatically give you preview URLs. So you don't have to set up any um, like infrastructure to automatically deploy each pull request. And that seems to work really well when it's just a single application. Right. Yeah, I haven't used Vercel personally, but that idea of being able to create a PR, but actually get like a clickable URL on some, you know, get SHA subdomain, whatever it happens to be, is so, so nice, right? Especially with, uh, even if you're working by yourself, it's just cool to be able to see like a real preview like that. You know, it, it's so tremendously useful and it seems like a, not something that, you know, you'll end up using that often or it's like, you know, it's nice to say that you have that, but in reality, you don't actually need it. It's so tremendously useful. We use it every single time we like work on a new feature because Laura or I will just share with another person on the team like that URL and it's really easy to see, hey, did we build this the way we want it to you know, work? After you've actually built it, it's much easier to sort of play with it. And, and then the really interesting thing is how it changes the landscape for testing. So if you have preview URLs for every single deployment, then it makes it really easy to run all of your tests in parallel. And the way QA Wolf works is, and we use QA Wolf to test QA Wolf, every time you do a deployment, so every time, let's say you open a PR with a new feature and Vercel deploys your environment with that code, then QA Wolf will kick off all of your tests. And because the URL is public and accessible, then you can run, you know, in infinite tests in parallel against that URL and dramatically speed up the time to get results for end-to-end -end tests. Yeah, that is really nice. And by the way, with that type of setup, do you find yourself using that almost as like an ad hoc staging server? Like, do you have a dedicated staging server that you run continuously or do you kind of just be like, well, you know, testing the feature, it looks good, it's passing all the tests, so let's just merge it in and then you just don't have a staging server? We do have some users that do that, and we still have a staging environment, and I think, you know, at some point we'll probably get rid of it, um, but it's for a little bit of peace of mind um, to have a manual step between deciding when you promote that to production. It's the only reason we have it. Um, I think we definitely could get rid of it, and with our end-to-end -end test coverage, um, we don't do that much manual testing before each release, um, almost none. So I could see us removing that. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of nice to hear that you don't have that much manual testing. It's basically just, I guess, what a human sanity check to know that, okay, I'm ready to deploy something to production now. I always like to check the feature that I just built. Um, we have end-to-end -end tests that cover sort of all of the critical functionality, but we don't have you know extremely detailed end-to-end -end tests for like each feature. So... As we ship, you know, 
like uh, we're working on changing the way test organization works. So we're going to ship a new feature where you can add tags to tests. Um, you still want to check all of the edge cases on a new feature like that and make sure that they work well. And that's nice to do in a staging environment, you know, when everything's merged together um, versus doing in production. So I think as we get better test coverage, it's it's possible that we could sort of skip that step. Right. Yeah, I don't know if you're the same way, but for me, it's always like, you know, I can have really good test coverage, at least on the backend code. And, you know, it's all working tests and everything is good. But for whatever reason, like sometimes I'll just see like, yeah, there's 287 passing tests, but does it actually work? Like I feel much more comfortable just doing that manual check at the very end. Well, I think that's what an end-to-end test is, right? We've always, or I've always had really great API test coverage in sort of all the companies I've worked for. And I think that's really easy to do because, you know, with unit tests or integration tests, they can run really fast and you can write like a thousand tests and they can run in a minute or so. Um, I found that writing unit tests for React code or like React components is not really that useful. Um, it would just generally be like a lot of different snapshots unless you have a really complex component, maybe like, uh, you know, can editable canvas component where you're like a diagramming tool. Then I found that unit tests end up just being a bunch of boilerplate snapshots. Um, however, for end-to-end tests, they're extremely useful for the front-end. Um, end-to-end tests, you're covering not just the front-end, but the back-end. So once you get a decent amount of coverage with end-to-end tests, um, then you can have high confidence that your stuff is working. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense because you don't want to have a million unit tests, but your front-end test does basically the same type of test, but it feels like you're just wasting your time writing so much boilerplate unit tests. Like you're over-testing because you're testing the same code path like five times. Well, I think there's a lot of different states for front-end components. And, you know, if you're changing a prop on a front-end component and that gets passed down to a few different components, like, and you're testing that in a snapshot, I'm not sure how useful that is. And um, versus testing API logic that the entities get written, just found that that does deliver higher value versus front-end tests, front-end unit tests. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. And by the way, going back to this app here, I mean, we have, uh, it seems like a lot to discuss here because we, we have both the back end, the front end and the deployment stuff. So do you want to maybe start off on what's some interesting packages that you're using on the back end to help you build this application? Like what's in your package, JSON? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the interesting packages that we're using is no VNC. The way that it works is we have a few different parts of our application. We have the API and front end, which is that Next.js application. And then we have the runner, which are running in containers. And that's what spins up a browser when you are using our UI and you run a test and you can see the browser in your UI. That's actually connecting over VNC to a container that we're hosting in the cloud with that browser. So the no VNC package is really helpful because it allows you to, they have a, um, they have some server side code and they also have a front end browser package where basically you can render this uh, VNC inside of your app. And now you have a remote desktop um, connection. So I think that's one of the more interesting packages that we're using. Yeah, that is very cool. You know, I haven't used that package firsthand, but it's basically a way for you to see the output of a server directly in your browser, but you didn't have to write basically any of that code, right? Yes. Um, we do have some things that we've sort of extended it with, uh, like to support copy and paste. Um, but yeah, most of it is just the core NoVNC package. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Because that video on your homepage, it showed like little check boxes in the gutter. Like you can basically like, Hey, run, you know, lines five and six only or something. Are those like little enhancements you've made to the package? Oh, so, um, actually only the right side of the screen in sort of the square box is the VNC. The rest of it is our uh, React code. So like we're using the Monaco code editor, which I guess is another interesting front end package. If you you know want any sort of code editor, uh, Visual Studio Code is actually built on top of the Monaco editor, which Microsoft gracefully, uh, graciously open sourced. And so we use that as the code editor on the left. And then we have a WebSocket connection from we have a few WebSocket connections. We have the VNC WebSocket connection, you know, for rendering the desktop that's connecting to the runner. We also have a WebSocket server that's running on the runner uh, for synchronizing code. So as you use the browser and it generates code, we send messages over Socket.io uh, over that WebSocket connection to update the code in the browser that you are in your browser. I just did some more research on this actually uh, this past week because I'm looking at sort of upgrading our shared state management and it's fascinating. Um, you know, back in the day, like a few years ago, there was Meteor and there's a few other libraries, but I think Meteor was the major node library that supported sort of shared state. And I haven't seen too many libraries that support shared state that you don't have to set up all the plumbing yourself. Um, like with WebSocket IO, we're, you know, just using the I mean, with Socket.io, we're just using the uh, library to send messages, but we end up having to set up all of the, like, the versioning and sharing state logic ourselves. Um, there's a new library that is extremely interesting that I'm looking forward to trying out and spending more time on called YJS, which uh, it's basically a way to share state and they sort of handle the synchronization for you in the background. And it's a data structure a CRDT that uh, is made specifically for things like text editing. So it tracks every single change. Um, like if you, you know, insert a line or insert a few characters to the left of, you know, some existing characters, it tracks all of those as separate changes and then it merges them with the rest of the changes in the background for you. Like if you're on a Google Doc and trying to um, manage conflicts amongst them. So I could be sort of writing some characters on the same line that you could be deleting characters and uh, basically multiple like hundreds of thousands of simultaneous users could be making changes and this data structure is responsible for um, compiling all of those changes. Yeah, so going back to your app here, um, is there anything else on the back end? Like, you know, it sounds like there's multiple backend apps, right? It's like the GraphQL API as well as the, you know, thing responsible for showing the code editor. Is there anything else in your backend tech stack that uh, you'd like to talk about in terms of packages that helped you build this one? Well, I think um, I have to give a big shout out to Docker containers and you know of the infrastructure behind that. Um, we're spinning up a separate Docker container for each of these runners and uh, for a few different reasons, but one of them's for security. So we can't trust any of the code that you're writing. You know, you could be a malicious user and trying to hack like our servers, so um, or each of our runners, which is running the browser and also all of your code, those are all running in separate containers. Um, and so they're completely isolated. And additionally, we're using Azure container instances to run each of those. So they have their own virtual machines that isolate each of those uh, instances. Right, so you have some isolation in your isolation. Yeah. 
And then we have an additional <laughs> level of isolation. We're actually using, I think it's VM2 is a node package, um, which also prevents uh, you from using certain like core libraries and um, runs. We run all of the user's code inside um, a node VM, uh, additionally inside of this container inside of the Azure VM. So there's a few different layers there um, to break out of. Right. No, that sounds like a really good practice, right? Because when it comes to security, usually it's like like layers of an onion, right? Like the more, the merrier, basically. Yeah. And um, we're actually in the middle of uh, re-architecting all of this. So it's uh, it's fun. But that was the quickest way for us to ship 2.0. Now we're actually re-architecting everything on Kubernetes because there's certain limitations we're running into with Azure. And so we need to have more fine-grained control over this. Hmm. But um, We will get there shortly about deployment stuff. But um, before we switch gears, do you want to talk a little bit about the front end then, like on the React side of things, like do you happen to use Webpack to deal with all of your assets or no? Yeah, so Next.js is built on top of Webpack. And for our front end, they're handling all of that. Um, the Like we're using TypeScript and React and it's all getting bundled with Webpack behind the scenes with Next.js. Um, we're using Webpack actually to, we have another project, it's called our Recorder which we actually inject into the site that you're using. And what it does is it collects all of the events or the events that we care about so that we can generate code based on your actions. Um, And we're using Webpack to bundle that into something that we can inject. Hmm. Very cool. By the way, like my front end skills aren't remarkably high. Like I've heard of Next.js before, but I also know there's a thing called like Nuxt, like N-U-X-T or something like that. Do you just want to give like a TLDR on what Next.js actually is doing for you? Because I thought maybe it's something that renders like, is that the one that renders server side templates for you? So you get the benefits of SEO and then it just like kicks in the client side stuff afterwards? Yeah. So they do a bunch of different things. Um, frankly, like we started with Create React App, which is like a wrapper around Webpack um, just to get a React project up and running. Um, the reason why we decided to use Next.js is because we wanted to have a somewhat larger application all in the same project, um, but without serving that whole front end every single time to every user. So what Next.js does is a few different things. Um, if you know they have a certain idiomatic patterns you have to follow about how you structure your pages, and when you do that, then they give you all these benefits sort of built in. So they give you server-side rendering, they do code splitting, so the page that you load, it first gets server-side rendered. So that's useful for things like SEO and quickly showing something on the page as it hydrates uh, the JavaScript. And they do the splitting for you. So you know we can have this large application, but as you visit each page, it's only served um, the you know necessary payload for that one page without serving your whole app every time. So if you go to our homepage, you know, and I think that's the most important page, we're not serving you like the rest of our application. It's They're not serving the rest of the application. They're just serving you the stuff you need to render the homepage. Then they have some cool things built in for performance. So when you're on the homepage and all of the links, like the Next.js links that you're using after the homepage loads, they'll actually start to preload the payloads for those other pages. So like everything that's linked to from the current page, they start to preload that in the background and, you know, speed up the time to go to like any of the other pages. 
Yeah, that is really awesome. Like, I didn't know it did the did the preloading stuff, but that stuff really makes a big difference, especially on like a non-perfect connection, right? If you're on localhost with the one millisecond uh, ping time to your server, fine, whatever, it's going to be good no matter what. But yeah, someone on like a mobile device or even like 100, 200 milliseconds, you can totally feel that. Definitely. I mean, if you're in a country where your internet connection is not very good, it makes a world of difference. I had to say, but I think our application is pretty bandwidth intensive because we're using VNC to stream the browser to your browser. So um, on that end, we probably send more data over the wire than 99% of the other sites that you'll end up using. Um, But it's nice that our homepage is performant. Right. So how big is your total payload, by the way? Like, you know, once someone's beyond the homepage and they're working with your application, like how much JavaScript are you sending it down? Like before, you know, gzip and stuff. Well, that's not that much, Um, you know, probably a few hundred kilobytes. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, the major data that we're sending is the frames of the browser. So VNC, it, you could think of it, I, I don't actually don't know what the compression algorithm it's using, but I imagine, you know, something like JPEG, let's say, you know, so it would send, let's call it a JPEG of your current, like the state of the desktop. And then when there's changes, then they just send the diffs. So they would just send like, little you know maybe like rectangles of what's changed so that we're all sending over web sockets and it's it's almost like we're streaming video um from these containers and that's mega megabytes of data i never thought about like diffing an actual jpeg so like if the base jpeg is i don't know like 60 kilobytes or something like that for the whole entire screen like the desktop screenshot if only a portion of that changes then they're only sending like a two kilobyte snippet of whatever rectangle or whatever it is yeah exactly so if you know, some of the small changes, like let's say you have a cursor that's blinking, you know, that's going to be a really small change that's being sent over the wire versus if you're watching a video on YouTube, you know, then that whole section is going to be changing pretty consistently. We tried a few different, this is like, that was actually VNC is the third iteration of figuring out how to host a browser, you know, or share a browser and use it from another browser. And we tried WebRTC before the VNC. And before that, we tried like building our own actually um, using internal Chrome APIs and and then sort of through trial and error and experimentation and finding performance issues landed on VNC. And another thing that we do actually for performance, you know, beyond just using VNC is we have containers all over the world. So we have some in the West Coast, we have some in Central America um, or Central US, like you know, I don't know if it's Texas or Arizona, but that's useful for South America. And then we have some on the East Coast. We have some in I mean, in Europe. Uh, we have some in Asia and some in New Zealand. So when you actually run a test, it will connect you to the closest available conta- container that we have based on your IP address. And we do like a reverse lookup for your latitude and longitude based on that. Oh, very cool. And then do they end up just having a direct connection then between their client and that runner? Like there's no intermediary server that it hits first that's located in, I don't know, California or something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, there is, we do have like a proxy server for each of the locations um, for like SSL termination. But um, besides that, I mean, and those are all located in the same locate, like same data center that you're accessing. So if you're connected to the you know, West Coast one, then you'd be terminating SSL at the West Coast. Okay. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I guess that that proxy server, I mean, 
is it also like a node app that's running so that your server-side node app can talk to the container runner service directly instead of the client? It's it's really just so that we can have uh, the SSL certificate under our domain name. Um, it's just a, it terminates the SSL and then forwards it, it to the right container. Um, and then they actually have, the containers have their own uh, SSL certificate, but those are not like provisioned with against uh, certificate registry. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, do those container services then understand like potential, like, I don't know if you have any, well, this is a good question. Do you have any rate limiting in place? Like I would imagine folks need to sign up, purchase some type of plan, and then they have access to run stuff. Like how does that container runner know like, oh, by the way, like Nick's account can only do like 40 more tests this month or whatever. Yeah, the runners, they are all orchestrated currently by our application, although we're splitting that out into a separate service. So you, the way it works now is um, our API server will assign you to a runner and that runner has like its own secret and its ID is sort of a secret as well. Um, so once you get assigned a runner by our API server, then you can connect to it because you'll know like the credentials you need and where to access it um, from the front end. Then what we do is we actually, when when it's done, like when you're done with your session, we'll clear out that and restart the container um, and issued a new API key. We're actually changing all of this now, but um, that way, like the API server is responsible for assigning these things and managing limits. Ah, very cool. And by the way, uh, talking about, you know, people signing up and stuff like that, is this a paid application or is it just, well, I mean, you know, people can self-host it if they want, but using the hosted version, you know, is that where you just charge users per month or, or annually? Yeah, it's a SaaS and it's a subscription. We have a free plan, so you can do 100 runs a month for free. And then once you get past that, then we charge basically per run. Oh, nice. Is that 100 every month or is it just like, you know, once you hit 100, then it's off the free plan? It's 100 every month. Okay, very cool. Yeah, because I would imagine for a smaller site, like that totally is a reasonable amount. Like you have enough to play around and actually try it out, right? Yeah, I mean, you can test basically three critical paths once a day. So you could test your sign-in, you could test your sign-up, and you know one other thing that's specific to your application for free and have you know much more confidence that you're not breaking something than if you have no tests um but yeah it's definitely like we want to give people an opportunity to try it out and love using qa wolf before they really start to adopt it so it's nice to have a free plan for that yeah absolutely and when it came to that you know 100 amount did you start at a different number and you arrived there like what what led you to 100 in the end well we didn't want to have a um plan that you know was useless like you know we could offer something like 10 runs and but that's not really going to be that useful for you and so we kind of just came up with a number based on it'd be nice to be able to run three tests for free and that'll help out smaller companies that don't have the budget to pay for a service like this and at the same time it costs us a decent amount of running money to like run these containers so we have to have some limit and at which point you would pay to upgrade to run more tests Right. Yeah. Especially when you start talking about spinning up like 60 tests in parallel, it's a lot of CPU and memory going. Yeah. When each test and certainly like our architecture, there's so many different ways to build what we're building. Um, and like, I always like to work backwards from what we're trying to accomplish. Our goal is to make the easiest and fastest way to run tests. That's not the necessarily the cheapest. And we're focused on the user experience. So like the way we built things we're spinning up a lot more resources than you could do if you did it a different way, but you have the benefit of having a much better experience 
um, which I'm happy to go into, but that's that's a whole other discussion almost. Yeah, for sure. But uh, sticking to the tech stuff just for now, uh, do you want to go over maybe some other things that you might be using that we haven't talked about, like in terms of you know databases or using Postgres or Mongo? Do you happen to use Redis and stuff like that? Yeah, we have a pretty simple stack right now. Um, we're just using Postgres as our data store. Um, we're actually re-architecting the runner infrastructure currently. So we're going to be adding in Redis and we're going to use that for our job queue. Um, right now we're using Postgres actually as our job queue and we have like a cron service. We're currently using Pipedream, which I highly recommend if you want just a simple cron service. We have, you can write like basic JavaScript and we basically have some basic JavaScript that's calling our APIs um, to run our jobs from Pipedream. So that's a cool tool that I highly recommend. Um, but we're changing big chunks of our infrastructure currently to um, support a few custom things that some larger companies need. Okay. Do you want to give us an example of some of those things? Yeah. So the major one, um, there's a lot of reasons why we, we want to switch to Kubernetes actually for our runner infrastructure, but it's everything's based on prioritization, right? Like you only have so much time in the day. Um, the feather, I guess, that broke the camel's back is we needed to su- we need to support OpenVPN. And uh, we have some customers that have all of their stuff behind uh, VPN. So we'd they'd like to be able to create tests against that um, their internal network. And to do that, we need our runner containers to connect with like ephemeral sort of temporary sessions to their VPN. Um, that's actually not possible to do currently with Azure container instances because you need the you need elevated permissions with Docker uh, to run a VPN in a container. Uh, you need like the net admin permission, I think. And so we just don't have that flexibility. And uh, the only way that I can think of doing that is with Kubernetes. Interesting. So I don't want to jump right into deployment stuff just yet, because I just want to rewind real quick when it comes to the payment stuff. Do you happen to use Stripe to support your payments or no? Yeah, we're using Stripe. Nice. Do you happen to be using their newer APIs, like you know, payment intents and those for subscriptions? I don't have the answer to that. Lord actually built this stuff. Um, so I apologize, but I don't know. I mean, we are using whatever we recently built like payments only about a month ago into QAWolf. So I imagine we're using the latest APIs. I think we, we tried to use some um, Stripe checkout, but, uh, that's a very new functionality they have. And we ran into some limitations there. Um, that's all I know about our Stripe limitation. Okay. Do you happen to know like what limitations you ran into using checkout? Well, yeah, I mean, checkout is a UI for the checkout. It's not just the API. They give you this uh, UI you can use for checkout. One of the things that you can't do, I think you can't manage subscriptions currently in checkout. That might have changed since the last time I looked at it. Um, But we wanted to be able to check out and manage subscriptions in the same place in our settings. Um, So we decided to build our own UI for that. Um, Basically, you have less flexibility. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I guess what you're using, what is it, Stripe Elements then for like the actual form fields to build your own custom uh, checkout form? I believe so. It's open okay. source, so I could find out for you and get back to you after this. <laughs> yeah, it's no problem. You can always just look at your code later. It's all good. Or anyone can check it out. I'll make sure to leave, leave links to that one in the show notes. And by the way, uh, when it comes to sending things out like emails, right? Like if a customer wants to create an account, they probably get, you know, a confirmation email or reset passwords and stuff. Like which email service do you use for that, for transactional email? Yeah, we're using SendGrid and 
I've had a great experience so far. I mean, mind you, we've only been live for a few months. Um, I know we have customers. So actually, QA Wolf has a functionality where you can test receiving emails. So like if your app, for example, our app sends out login codes and we have a test with QA Wolf that checks that it it actually sends out that login code. We're using SendGrid's webhooks to support that. Um, so basically, we'll provision an email address for each team and you can send emails there. Um, we have some customers that are using that like email receiving testing functionality. And we found that Amazon's email service is like really slow because um, their tests could time out after a few minutes because they, they didn't receive the email yet. Um, we've never had that sort of issue with SendGrid. I've also heard positive things about Postmark, but I've never used it before. Yeah, when it comes to those email services, there's like so many good ones to compare. There's like SendGrid and MailGun and Postmark and some other Spark one or something like that. Yeah, um, I think, you know, we went with SendGrid because we'd used it in the past. Um, but it is difficult to make these sort of calls. All I know is I, I definitely would not use the Amazon email service if you care about um, the time it takes to send out the emails. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense because it's kind of important to get these pretty fast in automated test. <laughs> yeah, for automated test, I mean, for us, we send out like login codes. And, you know, if you're trying to log in, you want to get that email immediately. You definitely don't want to wait a few minutes. So for that use case, it's very important. Yeah, for sure. By the way, just totally switching gears. When it comes to those proxy servers that you have running in front of your container runners, do you happen to be running Nginx uh, for that or something else? Yeah, we're using Nginx. Um I'm actually going to switch to using a node service to proxy and send it to the right internal container in Kubernetes um, because we're sort of changing the way, like I mentioned, the runner infrastructure works. Um, but currently we're using Nginx. Okay. And do you also use something like Let's Encrypt then for the certs or something else? Yeah, we're using Let's Encrypt for the certs. It's an amazing service. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, now let's uh, talk a little bit about how everything is set up in terms of deployments, right? You mentioned using Azure containers. So is your whole entire stack then running on Azure? Um, well, it's really like two two parts. The API, I guess three parts. You have the API and front end, which we're using Vercel. And we actually deployed a Vercel and Netlify as a backup. In case Vercel ever goes down, we can just point our DNS over to Netlify. Um, so that's for the UI and the API server. Then we have our database hosted, um, our Postgres database, and then additionally the runners, which are the runners are being hosted with Azure and uh, their Azure Container Instance service. Okay. And then when it comes to that Postgres database, are you using whatever Azure's managed Postgres database instance service is called? Like I'm not familiar with it. No, we're not. I mean, I wanted to use AWS is RDS. And I've used that a lot in the past. And the reason I wanted to use AWS is because Vercel is running in AWS. So it'd be nice to have the database right next to the API server. Uh, we ran into issues where we had too many concurrent clients connecting to that database when we were running it in AWS. And to set up um, a pool, like a connection pool, I forgot the name of it, but there's a, like a service you can use for Postgres. We had to configure all that manually. So we're actually using DigitalOcean to host our Postgres database because they have the connection pooling, which built in. And that's extremely useful if you're building a serverless API or, you know, with something like Vercel or Netlify or the serverless framework or like Lambdas. Right. 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, the PG tool, I think it's like PG Bouncer. PG Bouncer, yeah, that's the one. But that's super interesting to see that uh, DigitalOcean for the database, Azure for running the containers. And by the way, is Azure containers like their equivalent of something like ECS and AWS? Like it's basically a container orchestration tool that's not Kubernetes? Um, I would say it's closest. The the names are, I'm blanking here on the names, but uh, I know that AWS does have their own um container service and it's similar to that the difference is, is that they also provision like a dns for you so it's easier if you're building something like we are where you need to publicly access a container that is not just like a job i think aws is it's more useful for um like one off jobs but you don't have a persistent server that you need to connect to um they're like managed container service I'll have to look at the name of. Right. Oh, there's Fargate on AWS. Fargate. That's the one. Thank you. Yes, I would say container instances is comparable to Fargate, um, but the it doesn't work for our, Fargate wouldn't work for our use case because Fargate is like for um, one-off jobs and uh, it's hard to set up network access to it versus Azure containers provision you like a public URL that you can access the container from. Okay. So when it comes to Azure containers, like current day, I know you're moving to Kubernetes soon or, you know, in the future, but do you then not need to deal with the lower level details of like, okay, I wanted Ubuntu instance with this stuff installed. Like, is that all just like abstracted away from you? Yeah, it's completely abstracted away. You just say, I want to spin up this container or you can actually do a set of containers and then they'll, you can choose to have it be a public uh, endpoint or you can have it also be private, um, but they'll handle everything else for you. Very cool. And you you basically choose how much um, resources you need, like how many virtual CPUs and how much memory. Right. So then when it comes to like scaling up on demand, because, you know, a customer wants to run 60 tests or whatever, from your point of view, then you don't need to like really wait that long to provision a new server. It kind of, it just comes up through Azure containers within, you know, whatever reasonable amount of time, like a minute or something. I wish it was a minute. <laughs> um, the It takes about three minutes from when we request it, assuming they have capacity, which they might not always, um, to when an instance starts up. So, which is, my understanding is about the same amount of time it would take to spin up like an EC2 instance. Um, we are actually gonna be updating the way the infrastructure works so that as soon as your deployment to like Vercel starts, then we'll start spinning up our containers so that by the time your deployment's done, actually our containers will be ready. Um, but that's what the Kubernetes infrastructure would. Um, not doing that with Azure. So there is like a few minute delay to when the tests start. Uh, however, if you're using like a CI service and running end-to-end tests, it takes a few minutes to install your like packages and stuff. So it, I would say that is equivalent currently, but we would love it to be instant, which is what we're working on. Right. Yeah. It's cool to see that, you know, eventually with the Kubernetes setup, you'll be close to that. If not, you know, it won't be like immediate instant, but it will be very, very fast from the end user's point of view. Oh, it, it should be instant. I mean, there's very few apps that take less than a few minutes to like build and deploy. Um, so yeah, it will be instant. That's awesome. Now for this current setup, do you happen to use any tools to help manage the scaling of Azure containers up or down? Like do you use something like like Terraform or custom bash scripts, like just pure shell scripts or Ansible or something or no? We're just manually managing that, like all the orchestration in Node. We're using the Azure, uh, they have a SDK that we interface with to like spin up new containers and destroy and restart containers. Okay. So you kind of just wrote your own node script then that basically like a command line tool. Do you happen to have like a web UI for it? Um, it's, it's really like a set of jobs. So we have 
a few different jobs that are responsible for making sure there's enough runners running. We have different jobs that are like restarting runners. We have a job that's deleting runners and there's some health check jobs. Um, and that is another major benefit of using something like Kubernetes is we can sort of re-architect the way things work and just let Kubernetes manage the health of our runner pool, like spin up and delete, destroy containers when they're unhealthy. Right. So current day, like what does the workflow look like for you when it comes to deploying like a new backend service? Like, you know, you're bumping up the version of the runner. Have you written any like custom code to ensure that you have no downtime, like to making sure the runners are always up? Or is that sort of kind of like almost in a weird way, not possible because it's like the tests get run and then the containers die. So it's almost just like the next time you happen to spawn them, you'll, you'll get the new version. We're doing something sort of manual right now to drain the runner pool. And it's like a SQL script that'll sort of delete all of the inactive runners that are old. And then as we create the new ones and then the ones that are sort of doing work, like running tests, um, those are the ones that we wouldn't delete in the middle of a deployment. But as soon as they're done, then we delete those. So we kind of like drain out the current runner pool as we spin up new instances. And we're going to automate all of that. Right. Now, are you going to put in the time to automate that now? Or is it kind of just like on the back burner until you get Kubernetes set up and then you can kind of just write a custom solution for Kubernetes to deal with the draining? Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of our um, runner rewrite or like infrastructure rewrite with Kubernetes. Right. Yeah, I know enough Kubernetes to be dangerous, but I haven't gotten into like that super duper low, leave, uh, low level details. But it's amazing at how I don't, you know, at this point, it's almost like a meme that, oh my God, Kubernetes is so hard. Like you don't want to use it unless you have to run like 5,000 containers. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was sort of on board with that, not memeing out over it, but like, Jesus Christ, do I really want to use this thing? But now that I'm playing with it, at least from the basics point of view, it's like, whoa, I can just spin up like, you know, five replicas of my service, do a rolling restart on that. And when I want eight of them, I just tell it eight of them. And like, I don't need to really think about it. Like that just seems actually pretty useful. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see both sides of things. Uh, we we're, we hired a consultant that's like a Kubernetes expert to help get us up to speed with this. Like I initially actually built our infrastructure on Kubernetes and then decided to go this other route for like simplicity. Um, specifically, I, the one of the difficult things for us is we have to have our instances like all around the world for latency. And with Kubernetes, there, there is not like a simple way to have a Kubernetes cluster that spans like nodes that run in multiple data centers. So we will now like with this new infrastructure need to run multiple Kubernetes clusters around the world. Um, and that's why we actually initially decided not to go with it. But um, there's, I would say like overhead, you know, you have overhead of probably resources unless you developer resources that'll have to manage this or like DevOps resources that'll have to set this up. Um, I think it's a startup. I would recommend trying to avoid it, you know, figure out the quickest way to ship what you need for your user requirements. And then if you do have more complex requirements, like we definitely have, then you might need to adopt it, but really work from the user experience backwards and then decide if it's necessary. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, I have a feeling there's a lot of use cases where it's like, well, I can just throw this up on a single server, you know, two or four CPU cores, couple gigs of memory. And I just take the hit and every time I deploy there's like five seconds of downtime and you know for a lot of startups that's probably okay or maybe you can write some Lua scripts at Nginx to get really super fancy pants where you can like queue the results that fail with a 502 like the backend isn't there and then release them when your backend is back up so they get like a busy cursor instead of it actually being down like just a lot of little tricks you could do at one server yeah and I think you know or you use a managed service 
you know, there's Vercel and Netlify and Render um, that you could leverage as well. There's Code Deploy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I personally, if I didn't have to use Kubernetes, I wouldn't, but we do have a complex use case where it makes sense. Right. So now that consultant that you hired, are you going to keep him around or she around to basically, you know, get it up and running and then, oh, you know, we have some questions or whatever. Like they're not going to end up being a full-time employee, just like, you know, on demand basically. Yeah, that's the current plan. Um, sort of help bridge the knowledge gap that we have. You know, if you have an expert in something, it's going to be 10 times easier for them to do something than for us to figure it all out ourselves. Um, but we plan on continuing to work with him as uh, on an ongoing basis to make sure we're fully up to speed. And as long as he's available, um, it's, you know, if you have great people that you can work with and you can afford to, you know, pay for them, then uh, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't continue working with him. Yeah, because there's definitely like that's like, you know, your app is important for sure. But like the infrastructure is also important because if the app isn't running, then the app isn't working. <laughs> oh, totally. And it's not Um, I mean, we're collaborating on this project. So like we're we're working or like I'm working full time also on our infrastructure, updating it to Kubernetes. It's not like we're just sort of assigning it to him and then it's like, great, we're running, but I have no idea what's going on. And we're sort of like pairing on building all of this. Very cool. So uh, I know it isn't launched yet, but like. And it's going to be hard to maybe answer this one, but like how much actual YAML configuration do you have for Kubernetes right now? <laughs> I wish I had done the line of count on that. Um, you know, Helm charts, it's like crazy because you look at a Docker compose file and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty terse or like, there's not really that many lines of code in a Docker compose, but then like Helm charts, it's just so much YAML and I don't know why. Um, I'm sure that uh, Jeremy, our consultant would, you know, feel differently about this, but I do feel like it's, yeah, you do have a lot, a lot more lines there in YAML. Um, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but it's certainly hundreds, if not at least a thousand. Right. And honestly, I guess in the grand scheme of things, like, you know, a couple hundred or whatever, it's not really that bad. It's like your whole freaking infrastructure for the whole company's business to run every service on it, like in the exact way you want to do it. So, but I guess getting there is the hard part, right? From ground zero. Yeah. And my understanding is it's not going to change that, that much. So we're actually using this interesting open source framework. It's called uh, CubeStack. I don't know if that's what you call it, but it's basically a workflow where, and it, it works on all the different major Kubernetes platforms um, where you set it up and or you use it to set up your Kubernetes stack. And it sets up this Git flow where every time you sort of merge to uh, production, it will automatically update your infrastructure on like your provider. And it's working out. I mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you know in a few months, I guess, after we release this into play. But it is pretty cool that you can sort of get that Vercel like infrastructure with Kubernetes out of the box. Yeah, that would be really cool. And by the way, when you do switch over to this, is it going to be on Azure or are you going to go with a different provider? Um, I can't say right now. I think we'll probably use AWS because um, it's nice to have everything in one place and knowing that there will be communication between our API servers and Vercel, uh, which is running in AWS and have that communicate with them, um, our runner infrastructure in the same data center. Um, but I'm open-minded about it. Right. Do you think maybe you'll try to, if you move to AWS, like just try to figure out the PG bouncer situation so you can move your database there as well? Oh yeah, that's definitely part of the plan. Um, we're starting off with our runner infrastructure, but then we're definitely going to move the database into one of our clusters and possibly also our API um, serving. There's benefits to using Vercel though. I mean, because it is nice that you sort of have this 
infinite scalable capacity with requests. So I could imagine us sticking with that for a while, but there's also benefits of, you know, having all of that in the same place. And so definitely moving the database into Kubernetes, a question mark on whether or not we'll host the actual app itself. Right. And I know this is like kind of theoretical because you haven't executed yet, but you know, if it does come down to you moving your database from DigitalOcean to either running on RDS or within your Kubernetes cluster, you know, at some point your whole database needs to move from the old place to the new place. Do you have any like strategies or, you know, have you thought through how you might do that or try to do that without any downtime? Um, I think we'll just suck up the downtime. Um, and but however, we'll do like some dry runs, you know, we'll have a mirror of it running and like do that a few times, make sure that we get the transfer working and then decide, okay, now we're going to be offline at, you know, 1am for 30 minutes or an hour and do the, do the switch. Yeah. I couldn't imagine doing that without like dry runs. Cause that would be the worst feeling ever to like pull the trigger on starting to do it. And then you just run into something crazy. And before you know, it's like five hours in and you're not up. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no way. I mean, we have um, a decent amount of clients now that rely on QA Wolf for their testing infrastructure. So if we weren't launched, then, you know, maybe I would consider something like that. Um, but no, we, we have to get it right. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, uh, current day, you know, pre-Kubernetes setup, what does your deployment process look like? Like if you want to deploy the back end, uh, what does it start from, you know, ground zero, right? Like adding the feature in your local Git repo to pushing that up. Like how does it make its way into production? I have to say the modern approach using a service that does all this for you, like Vercel or Netlify, I'm a major evangelist of that. Um, it's super easy. You know, we start a PR, um, or we, you know, branch off of our main branch and then code on the feature. When you're ready to deploy it, then we open up a PR and Vercel and Netlify spin up our preview URLs. We have QA Wolf set up that runs our end end tests against those preview URLs. So we know, you know, we have some sanity checks to make sure that. Um, we have a subset of all of our end-end tests that run against like features to make sure you didn't break like sign-in or some of the critical functionality. We also have a bunch of unit tests. So we have like all of our API unit tests and integration tests that run in GitHub Actions on the same PR. And once we go through like a code review and make sure that we like the way everything works against the preview URL, we'll merge that into our... Um, Sorry, I apologize. It's actually not our main branch. It's our develop branch. Um, is, and then after that gets merged, Vercel automatically deploys all of that to our staging environment. Um, once it's deployed to our staging environment, then it runs our full set of QA Wolf end-to-end -end tests. And after those are done, um, whenever we decide to, then we just bump up our main branch to the latest develop and it deploys that to production, and then it runs the QA Wolf and then test against the production environment. Nice. Yeah, that is some chain. I don't like saying that in a bad way, right? It's like a lot of awesome automated steps along the way. Like, what is a turnaround time from you pushing the code to it being live, or you know, to the point where you'll make the manual uh, cut over to live? Very quick. Um, you know, we we do. If there's a bug that someone finds, and um, you know, we'll, we'll turn around it like a fix to that and ship it to production in 30 minutes, I would say. Um, if depend if it's like a simple thing to fix, right? I want to say we release every day, but now we're working on some sort of major surgery in our UX. And so we're working on and like in our infrastructure. So those are sort of more long running features. Um, but there was a period of time, and again, it's really just Laura and I 
uh, coding on this. And we have a little bit of consulting help. Um, there's a period of time where we're shipping new functionality every day. And I would say doing less than a few minutes of manual testing because of our automated tests every day. Right. Yeah, that's not bad at all. That's a very fast turnaround for such a you know pretty good size application. And there's just no way that I would feel comfortable doing this if we didn't have the end-to-end -end test coverage with QA Wolf. Not to like you know to to my own home, but it really has made a major difference in our ability to ship features quickly and more confidently. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure everyone out there, developer-wise, will at least agree that tests are good to have. Like, there's almost no question whether it's TDD. Well, that's opening cans of worms, but Tests are good. Yeah, tests are good. And the tricky thing is, you know, the, the trade-off between manual and automated testing is manually testing is easy, right? It's really easy to do. Just use your app um, and, and go through the different functionality that it works. Versus automated testing can be hard to set up and get right, but it's really fast. So if you have those automated tests, then you just run them and, you know, you can have confidence that your stuff's working. And that's really our goal is to bring down the barrier of difficulty and make it try and make automated testing as easy as manual testing. We have a long way to go there. Um, but if that's the case, then there's sort of no reason not to just set up automated tests. Right. Yeah, definitely. And by the way, you know, speaking of these tests and CI services, do you happen to run any code linting or static analysis against your code base that'll just stop the CI pipeline dead in its tracks if it fails? Yeah, we have ESLint set up. Um, and like we're using GitHub Actions to do the ESLint and to do the unit tests and we're using just for our unit tests and, and integration tests. Sorry. So when it comes to that ESLint setup, uh, do you use a specific, uh, what is it even called, right? Like an extension, like Airbnb's ES rules or something? Yeah, so we're using ESLint and we're using Prettier, I think is like our default ESLint rules. Um, and we have some like minor modifications to that, but we're using that to lint all of our code base and it will, if it fails on air, it will stop the whole build. Nice. So when it comes to those code reviews, uh, you're adding some code, Laura's adding some code. Do you thoroughly review each other's code? You know, just like a typical code review before it all gets merged. Cause you know, you mentioned like a code review, but sometimes it's like, yeah, there's a code review and then there's like a real code review where it's like, you're going line by line, very like scrutinizing everything. Yeah. So generally Laura or I will be responsible for an entire feature. So, you know, if Laura is working on a new feature, for example, right now she's working on changing the test organization to support adding tags to tests, she'll keep working on it. Um, we might do multiple reviews. Like there, we try and if possible, actually try and ship as small PRs that we can, uh, cause it's nice to break things into chunks and just get those out to production. In some cases that's really difficult. So it's, it's just, we always sort of decide, um, how much time are we going to save by doing this? Or is it going to be too difficult to actually split this thing up? Um, she's working on a pretty massive surgery for our UX. So, well, in that sort of situation, then we'll do multiple code reviews as she gets through different steps. She'll ask me for feedback and then I'll sort of go through it and look through all the files and leave comments. And finally, when it's ready to go, then I'll, if, you know, she's working on the feature, then I'm doing the code review. I'll go to the staging, I mean, the preview deployment URL that has that feature and try it out or pull it locally and run it and go through and make sure it all works the way I expect it. Um, and then leave any comments and then finally like approve it and then she'll merge it and vice versa. If I'm working on a feature, then she'll do the same thing. So we, we do detailed reviews. We only have two people working full time on engineering and it's, it is really important. I mean, we always catch things in, in 
reviews. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can't count the number of times where I thought like, okay, for sure this is going to work. But then someone's like, by the way, Nick, line 77, did you mean to do that? Oh no, I forgot. Whoops. <laughs> Happens all the time. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're trying to move fast, um, it's code is complicated, right? It's, it's nice to have a second pair of eyes on on things that are complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of complications and, you know, maybe unfortunately things going wrong, uh, what have you done so far for dealing for disasters, like, you know, like keeping database backups or maybe other files that potentially get created when a user runs some tests? Yes. Yeah, so we do uh, definitely have database backups and we have redundancy on our um, APIs in the sense that we're deploying it to Vercel and then we also deploy it to Netlify. Um, so if we have to switch over our DNS to point to our Netlify, um, we can do that. And our runners are running in multiple Azure data centers all over the world. So let's say that um, the East Coast data center goes down, then you'd still be able to connect to the runners you know, on the West Coast. That being said, we've in just a few months that we've been live, we've seen a one Vercel outage. Um, we've seen like, I think two or three Azure outages. So, and like a, like, a global Azure outage where it didn't matter that we had runners in multiple data centers. They had like an authentication issues. Um, so it will be nice when we switch to Kubernetes and we have a little bit more flexibility where theoretically we could even run across multiple data centers, though we won't initially do that. Right. Yeah. That sounds like a, like a phase two type of deployment where multiple data centers, maybe multiple cloud providers even. Oh yeah. Sorry. Multiple cloud providers. We're, it, we have to support multiple data centers um, just because of the latency thing. Um, but I think even multiple cloud providers is important if you need to have really great uptime, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, these cloud providers are quite reliable. You know, like S3, if you can't depend on that, you're like, what can you depend on? But every once in a while, they go down and you have no control over that. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame them. Like, there's no doubt if I was running, you know, anything you're running at scale, it's it's extremely difficult. So I have empathy for anyone that works on one of the cloud services needs to maintain that kind of uptime. Yeah, for sure. I am very happy that uh, folks out there can manage such infrastructure and uh, mostly works. So I am happy. By the way, uh, when it comes to other disaster recovery things like, you know, logging or error reporting or pager duty stuff, like, do you have any of that going on? Yeah, we're using Datadog for a lot of that. And we have, like, we're sending our logs to Datadog and then we have some alerts based on logs. So we have... Uh, some jobs that run and check statuses of things. We make sure that there's no runs that are taking too long to start up. And if there are, then we'll get alerted about that from Datadog. We also have, um, we're using their like API checks uh, where you can hit an endpoint and make sure that it responds with the 200. So we're using those in a few different places um, to make sure like our proxies are up. And we tried to use Sentry um, we found that our errors were pretty noisy. We might consider re-implementing it, um, but what we're doing that's been extremely useful is we log out an alert for any server error, and that'll get logged, sent to Datadog with like the text alert, and then we have a monitor set up where it'll send us a Slack message anytime there's an alert in our Datadog logs. So every time our API errors, we get an alert about that, and then we just fix it. Right. Do you know offhand, like, the last time you got one of those errors and what you did to fix it? I'm trying to think. I mean, it's been, fortunately, a decent amount of time. Um, 
some errors like we have to we started off i guess a lot of the recent errors are us being um you know sending ourselves alerts for things that we don't need to send ourselves alerts for um out of we basically by default have everything be an alert and then we kind of pick and choose which ones we shouldn't be alerted about so for example if you hit our api um and you give it an invalid invalid credentials we shouldn't be alerting ourselves about that um because sometimes tokens expire and it's okay that there's that error so a lot of the cases that we fixed have just been sort of um lowering the threshold for that error recently previously like the last real error that i can recall is because our api and our front end are pretty deeply coupled uh, meaning like when we build a new feature we might expose some stuff in our graphql api and we don't worry about backwards compatibility in our internal APIs. So if you're on an old version of our single page application, then you could run into issues. When we went live, like we ran into a lot of issues where we were getting errors because people had it outdated. You know, they they used our site, we're deploying pretty frequently, we're changing, breaking the GraphQL API, and now like it's erring when they have uh, requesting fields that don't exist or something like that. So what we did is we built, we include a header in all of our responses that has the version of the API. And if the web app doesn't have that version, it has an older version, it just does a reload. Oh, so nice. to grab the latest. And um, basically that means anyone who's using our, our site, when we do deployment, they'll get a reload. And it's not perfect. You know, obviously you could do a smarter way about handling that, but it's good enough. Yeah, it's really, it's awesome that you bring that up because that's something I've struggled with like, I don't really write single page applications much, but when I was screwing around a bit with Phoenix and Elixir in the live view thing, you know, while you're not writing like an API backend, like SPA front end, you are dealing with situations where, you know, a user has your page open for a long period of time. And like the head of the page is not getting reloaded on every page transition, you know, going switching between tabs or whatever. So it's like your assets are just sitting there. And yeah, if you deploy new ones, I mean, how do you get that new information over? Is that like through a WebSocket event and then you just reload the browser completely? But, uh, and that's like part one question. And part two question, it's like, do you ever find yourself wondering, like what would happen if that auto reload were to happen if someone were just in the middle of like checking out, like, you know, signing up for your service. And then suddenly it's like you make this change to your backend code or sorry, your front end code on some other page, but it like triggers a reload while they're checking out. Great questions. Um, to answer your first question, we do a ton of different API requests, you know, grab data and then some things we're like pulling for. So every single API request response has the version in it. So if you make any request, you're going to get, you know, you'll get the latest information about what version it is. And then we have like a global front end handler that's looking at all of those responses and it does the reload. So it's, it's not like we have some you know, WebSocket connection that's always connected, but rather like when you end up needing new information, that's when you get the info of whether or not your client is outdated. Um, to answer your second question, which is how do you not mess up like users experience that are doing something and then you or do a reload? Uh, that's a great question. And I can't say that we handle that very well right now, except for that we don't have any like really long running workflows. Um, where you would lose state and then it would really be bothersome. So you might lose like the last thing you did. For example, in QA Wolf, like you can change the name of a test. And so you click into the name field 
And when you click out of it, or you edit the name, and then you, when you click out of it, that's when we actually send the requester API to save it. So you might lose that one last action. Um, same thing with like, let's say you're writing code and you're changing it. We do like debounced updates. Um, you might lose a few characters of like the latest code that you edited, but you shouldn't lose like a significant portion of it. And with sign up, I guess, you know, we actually, the only thing we're doing is redirecting you. Um, I do think we actually redirect to some sort of Stripe form where you fill out the payment with Stripe. Um, and with that, like we're not reloading Stripe. So uh, the only long-term thing I can think of in our app that we're doing is like, let's say you create a trigger or like a schedule um, and then you would lose that. But I think, you know, ultimately it comes down to how do you prioritize things. Things. Um, we definitely ran into a lot of issues with users because we're getting all these errors having outdated clients and it being a problem for their experience. So that was a big problem. Um, and we haven't heard any complaints yet that they've lost, you know, stuff they were doing. So it's not a big problem for us currently. Yeah, sounds like you've made a great solution to that because it is a tricky problem, right? Like we're so focused nowadays to moving towards these more, you know, feature rich applications. It's no longer just rendering an HTML response and then, you know, you click the link and you get the full HTML response for the next page. So it's like you're running a stateful application in the client basically. Yeah, I mean, I, and I can give some simple solutions to situations where you do need more fine grain control. Like, you know, in the part that does the reloading, we could have some sort of global state that says like lock reloads. So if you know you're on a workflow, um, you could like, while you're in the middle of it, prevent a reload from happening. And that would be like a simple fix to that if if it were an issue on any sort of of the workflows. Yeah, I think with the Phoenix Live View setup, they also have hooks to be like, you know, you don't necessarily need to do an actual full-blown page reload. You can basically emit any code that you want. So like instead of doing the whole full reload, you can just put a little banner somewhere or something like that to be like, hey, new version of app is available. Click here to reload or something like that. So the user is in control of when they want to get the full reload. I love that idea. That's actually much better than what I came up with. So we'll we'll probably adopt that if we we end up needing to do this. Right. Because yes, that's a funny, tricky situation. Like, have you ever used like the discourse forums before, like the message board? I've used discourse, but I haven't run into that before. Right. So with discourse, it's like, well, it's not this specifically, but if you're sitting on a list of forum threads, like, you know, someone's forum and a new forum post pops up, they just give you this nice little uh, little div that says, hey, by the way, there's like two new topics to look at, but they don't just jump in your face. Like you have to click the link to see those two new topics. And I think that's a really cool UI experience because it's like you as the end user are now in control when you get to have your DOM modified to see those new things instead of them just being like shoved in your face. Yeah, that does seem like an elegant way to handle it. Yeah. Now, speaking of elegance, maybe maybe you can switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, best tips and lessons learned. Like, what are some uh, things you've learned from building this app and the infrastructure behind it? Uh, there's, there's so many things here. Um, I think the major lessons that we learned are focus on getting something out there and learning from it. Um, you know, we learned so much by launching various iterations and prototyping um, like the different ways of hosting the browser and by quickly, you know, if we had focused on getting those perfect each time, then we would have wasted a lot of time because the core way we were doing things like just fundamentally didn't work well enough. Um, you know, we, we didn't build copy and paste support before we figured out what the core technology was, um, for how we were streaming the browser. So ship an early version to prove out or disprove like 
the core pieces of what you're trying to test um, is one thing. And then I think the second thing is really focusing on working backwards from what is it that you're trying to solve and what's the easiest way that you can solve that now. Because we found as we're building things, you know, you're if you're doing a startup, and I think this advice is probably best, or I'm, I'm speaking to similar companies that are constantly evolving their product um, and building new functionality. When you're doing that, then you learn so much by shipping features. So if you can break things into manageable chunks and get those to production, even if they're turned off, like with a feature flag, it makes the whole process of shipping a new feature much easier and much less of a headache because you have a lot less changes um, and you can learn a lot more quickly. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and by the way, speaking of feature flags, do you happen to use that with your setup or no? Yeah, we do with like environment variables. Okay. Like what's the workflow look like when it comes to introducing a feature behind a feature flag? Do you just turn it on for a subset of users, like 10% or only on the staging server? And then like, does it eventually turn into like a real core piece of the app? And then it's like removed as a feature? So let me correct my last answer. Um, like it depends on which feature. Uh, we have a lot of stuff that's in the database. So team specific. Um, like we have a feature that we just started testing out um, the ability to store all of your tests in GitHub, like and use test branches. So we have, you know, you can call it a flag, but it's really like a column in the team row of the database where that team will have like a Boolean enabled for that feature. And then that based on that, we load that in the front end and the front end will render things differently. Ah, cool. So any other like potential maybe gotchas or mistakes you've made along the way that you overcame, you know, over time after just deploying and getting some feedback? Well, I think really a lot about our business model and focus. Um, we discovered through that. I'm trying to think about like infrastructure related, um, it's easier for me to you know speak on like the product front than infrastructure. I mean, I think again the where we've learned so much is trying to stream a browser through a browser and building that a few different ways. I guess the second thing we learned a lot about is code generation is a really hard problem. So as you're using your site, there's a ton of actually different recorders. We're not like the first uh, test recorder where you can use your site and it'll generate test code. Generating good test code is like the challenging problem. Um, because a subset of that problem is which selector to use. You have to choose, you know, if you're clicking on a button, there's a lot of different CSS attributes that might be on that button or on the like surrounding elements in the tree. And picking the highest value combination of those that uniquely identifies that element um, is a really tricky problem. You know, we've shipped, uh, I think we're on like the 10th version of our selector generator um, but just learning from users and them reporting to us cases where it didn't work. So when it comes to that like hierarchy of things, like do you just start with, okay, if there's an ID on there and it's unique, of course use that one. But then when, when there's like, you know, I don't know if you're using Tailwind or something, but if there's like, you know, 15 CSS classes on a button or something, do you just like narrow that down until you find some unique combination of that? And then it's like, okay, cool. That's the button. We've tried so many different permutations of this. Um, I can tell you currently the way we're doing things is... We call them cues. So like, you know, an attribute, a CSS attribute or um, like the type of element it is, like a button or a link. We, on the element you're trying to click on, we co collect all of the potential cues and then we start to 
combine the we have a penalty system so we we've sort of manually decided certain things are better than others like if you have a test attribute or an aria label those will have a really low pen penalty because they're good selectors and um, so if you have like data dash test or data dash qa purchase item or add to cart then we're going to pick that one up um but we combine we basically just try and combine different sets of cues that and choose the one that has the lowest penalty um but we do some like batching because you know you might try a queue or a set of queues and it is a pretty low penalty but is it the lowest penalty it's a really difficult problem because you've limited computation time like we need we need to generate a selector in less than 100 milliseconds or you're going to start blocking the ui and so we have like a timeout to how long we actually try different combinations basically yeah we have a penalty system for which are the best cues and we sort of crawl the dom in an efficient way to collect different cues and to combine them until we find a good answer okay yeah no that's a great explanation and like i commend you of going that route because i mean i'm sure you thought about this too right there's like there's the easy road that you could have taken right where it's just like well instead of you trying to get cues from various things like you can just always put a data attribute specific to your service on an element but now it's like the whole product changes because the end user needs to go in and modify their application to like instruct your tool of what DOM elements you care about. Yeah. And if you do have those test attributes and it just works amazingly, but the reality is that, you know, the person who's creating these tests, they might not be a developer and they might not have access to the code base. And our goal is if, you know, working from the user experience backwards, our goal is to be the easiest way to create these tests. So if I can write a test without needing to change the site, then we want QA Wolf to be able to do it too. Yeah. And then we, to do that, you know, we just ran into all these different cases. Like the last one we fixed um, had to do with autocompletes. When you're typing in like a Google Maps address and they have like the Google Maps autocomplete for all the different addresses, those will issue different events and like it'll issue um, a submit event to a form or like a sometimes, uh, or like, which could issue a click event. Um, but we need to ignore those clicks because it's not a real click. You know, you even though you clicked on an element, that issues a real click, but then it'll issue an additional click um, that's like system generated. And so we basically have this huge test suite of all of these different corner cases that we constantly add to to improve like our code generation. Oh man, like at this point, we didn't really get a chance to go over this, but like how much test code do you think you have written versus actual application code? For the recorder, it's definitely like 10 to 1, if not like a 20 or more. Um, but for the rest of the code, I, it's not at that level. The recorder is an area where tests are very important because, you know, we have all these special cases and we don't want, we want it to work for those. So we don't want regressions. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that's the whole value. Like, it's so nice to have that list of, of tests because there's no possible way you can keep all of that in your head and like manually test it every time. No possible way. Yeah, none whatsoever. So, John, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate uh, the invitation. Yeah, no problem. It was uh, an amazing conversation for sure. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, um, our site is qawolf.com, and on there is a link to our GitHub, which is just github slash qa wolf slash qa wolf and that's the main repo where all of our code is and my email address is john j-o-n at qa wolf.com if anybody has any questions about testing our code base running an open source project uh 
doing an open source startup and raising money for it, I'm happy to answer that. Um, or I'm also happy to help you get up and running with testing. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes. And it's kind of funny, like, you know, we could have talked a little bit about like how you actually run these tests in the container runners, but I sort of, you know, punted on that idea for now because it's like, well, the source code is there if someone really wants to look into the gory details. Yeah, and I'm happy to answer any of those questions. It, it's hard because there is so much to talk about in the infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.